Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Julie Michael, CEO of Team One, which is part of the Publicis Group of Companies. Julie's had an incredible career. She's been part of the Publicis family for a long time and really just uh, risen up the ladder in a marvelous way, and we're going to get into that. She uh, started off many, many years ago and spent some time at McCann. I didn't mean to imply that you're old, Julia. That didn't come out right. <laughs> and also has had some interesting experience in the academic arena. So, Julia, I can't start our conversation knowing that you spent time at the University of Colorado without raising one of the two biggest stories in America right now. Uh, I think number one at the moment is Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I think number two is Deion Sanders. And I spent uh, a very memorable summer when I was 15. So that was about 44 years ago um, at the University of Colorado Boulder and, and remember it fondly. Um, I, I'd love to start by talking about remembrances of those early days in Boulder, Colorado, one of the most creative, wonderful places that I've ever been in the, in the United States. Let's do it. Nice to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. University of Colorado Boulder is beautiful. One of the prettiest campuses in the world. I had a personal love for their mascot, Ralphie, who's the buffalo that they let run around the field at halftime of every game. Uh, I had a wonderful experience there, and it's been crazy to watch Dion light it up. I mean, what an incredible story. And now he's in, he's in crossing over into our field. He's a major spokesperson for major brands now on television. And I, there seems to be no uh, sign of this slowing down at all. No, and I think he loves the spotlight. And sometimes that gives you a little momentum when the world's watching and all eyes are on you. I think people rise to that and teams rise to that. And clearly my Buffalo's have been doing that. Although this weekend should be interesting. We'll see how they do. We shall see. Yeah, the competition's right. getting a little stiffer. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, let's really get into it now. Early on, you spent uh, a number of years at McCann and worked on some great, great brands. Uh, but you also spent some time working at a smaller shop, Livingston and Company, going back to the early 90s work for the Seattle Mariners, which I guess were a relatively new team at that time. Is that sure. part of the country? Is that sort of part of your DNA in history? Yeah, so I grew up in Minnesota, born and raised through high school, and then went away to college and had a pretty interesting college trajectory. I spent a couple years at University of Colorado, um, a stint at Cambridge in England, and then ended up at University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. I love the mountains. And after school, I had a good friend and, and the two of us just didn't know where we wanted to live. And we said, okay, let's make a top 10 list. You make your top 10 cities. I'll make my top 10 cities. Let's see which one cross references the highest. I think Seattle was number three on my list and number one on my friend's list. And so there we did, we packed our bags, went to Seattle. I didn't have huge connections in the market at all, but I certainly knew it was an awesome place to live and a growing place to live. And, you know, I was there kind of during the advent of Microsoft and all the, the fun things that were happening in, in Seattle at the time. Um, and so I started my career at Livingston and Company, 
I worked directly for a gentleman named Pat Duty, who you might know went on to run Wong Duty. He was an awesome boss. Uh, I was his assistant and I was a terrible assistant. I couldn't keep his calendar straight. I couldn't stay on top of the stuff he needed, but he was an awesome man to work for. And he gave me a lot of grace and taught me a lot. When I was there, we worked on In-N-Out Burger, Seattle Mariners, uh, a local grocery store, Domino's Pizza, Washington Mutual, which at a time was called Washington Mutual. And then it went on to be called WAMU. And now it's called nothing because they're non-existent anymore. Uh, I definitely had very formative years from Livingston to McCann Erickson when I was in Seattle. Those were just wonderful times in advertising. It was the early 90s. And I mean, I learned exponentially every year there. I love a story like yours. It reminds me of someone else we had on the show a few years ago, Karen Kaplan, who just retired, was at Hill Holiday and started as a receptionist and became the CEO, was there north of 40 years. Uh, did you always know you wanted to work in this field or was it just sort of an accident that that was where there was a job and you needed a job? So I knew from seventh grade that I wanted to run an ad agency someday. And I have pictures at my house in Minnesota where I would draw buildings that had my name on them. And these would be the ad agencies I was going to work at. And if you knew me, I'm kind of very humble and practical and not high flying. So for me to do that was a little bit surprising. My parents thought they're like, wow, she must really love this sort of creativity and advertising thing. Hmm. Well, when I went on to college, I uh, got a business degree and a journalism minor and university of Montana has a wonderful journalism school. Um, and so I always knew that I wanted to work in an agency from day one. I knew that that was where I was sending my resumes was every ad, ad agency I could think of. My folks wanted me to move back to Minnesota. So I did a couple interviews at Fallon and almost worked there and then just decided I didn't want to move back home. Not because I don't love it there, but just, you know, you're leaving school. You want to go somewhere else. And uh, ironically, Fallon's a sister agency in Pubis's group right now. So things do come full circle. Uh, but I always knew I wanted to work in this industry. For me, it is the combination of creativity and commerce. I'm probably more of a commercial mind than a creative mind. There's nothing I love more than being around the chaos and excitement of creativity. I love that story. Where do you think that comes from? Were your parents in creative industry or, you know, I, when I was uh, that young, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then eventually I got to high school and took biology and I was awful at it. And that ended my uh, veterinarian aspirations. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from for you? Father worked at Medtronic for a long time. And when Medtronic, he started there when it was almost a startup. And now it's a giant medical device company, as you know. Um, he's a very entrepreneurial person. He ran, he always had a side hustle, whether it was a a property he rented out or a girls basketball camp that he started. He just kind of loved ideas and he loved commercializing stuff. So I watched him work in the basement of our house at Six Hingham Circle in Mendota Heights, Minnesota, like building business plans for these things. And I just kind of got hooked watching him do it. Uh, while he held a corporate job his whole career as well. And my mom was a teacher. 
So she was a curious mind. She always wanted to teach something and learn something. And so that combination, I think, was just enough to keep me excited in this area. I love that combination of uh, commerce and creativity. It's a great, great answer. Uh, let's talk about Minnesota roots a little bit. And I know you've lived all over and you said you love the mountains, which we'll come back to because I know you did some work for, you know, uh, some businesses in the outdoor world at Crystal Mountain. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I have a real affinity for the state of Minneapolis, the state of Minnesota, I should say, in the city of Minneapolis, uh, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. One of my favorite breakfast places is uh, Mickey's Diner. Uh, an old ah, place, an old place sure. in St. Paul. So, I used to go there with my high school friends late night. Probably yeah, I, not the prettiest scene. But yeah, I think it's a solid life. B or C health rating. Yeah, but it's a great, great place. And we went a few years ago. Uh, Target Roundell is a very uh, big supporter of Advertising Week. And a couple of years ago, they asked us after to come out and share some findings with their leadership team. And I took Louise, who runs uh, New York and our global partnerships, with me. And I dragged her to Mickey's Diner. It was still there. And we had a great, great breakfast. There's mm -hmm. a certain gravitas to people from Minnesota that is pretty unique. Uh, you use the word humble to describe yourself. I think that's right. What is it about Minnesota and grounding people uh, that is so distinct? I love being from there. I love going back home there. I love my family and friends there. It's still, I haven't lived there in, you know, 30 plus years. And I still feel like those are my people when I go back. And I've thought a lot about this question. There's a great education system in Minnesota, but even more so, I think it's the weather. I mean, the weather is a beast. Summers get really hot. Winters are frigid. There is something about you know, you walk in, see, see a friend and they always say cold enough for you, but they say it with a smirk and a smile. Like I'm fine. Are you fine? There's, there's a toughness that comes from kind of being able to endure everything and kind of laugh about it. And there's also a teamwork deal. You know, when your friend slides their car into the ditch or there's ice on someone's driveway, or it's too cold to start your battery of your car and you've got to jumpstart a friend. I mean, these are, these were my growing up moments where I always watched my parents help each other. It was mostly weather related, but they'd help their friends and other kids and families. It was just kind of this, we're in it together against the weather. And actually there were parts of it that had beautiful weather, the falls and the springs. And I love a good snowstorm and a thunderstorm. So I'm a fan of weather for sure. And I think there's just this sort of commonality of toughness and wittiness that comes from just being a survivor, you know, like I'll always land on my feet. That's how people from Minnesota feel. Uh, that's such a great answer. And uh, uh, I love it there. I love going there. I got to go to uh, Target Field to a Twins Yankee playoff game, actually. What a great ballpark. Oh, and you can reach out and touch the buildings downtown almost. It's, uh, they just did such a good job with it. And they have this organ player who's been there like 40 years and she plays in some bar, you can go in and the organs right there and she'll talk to you. And oh my God, what, what a special place. So you remember Lake Wabagon? Did you ever listen to Garrison Keeler? He always yeah, did. Yeah, of course. Of on course. Lake Wabagon, and he had a quote 
um because it lake wabagon was a fictional place in minnesota and he used to say where all the women are strong the men are good looking and the children are above average yeah i think that's very well said and very accurate great great place so you move from uh livingston and uh rise up uh from your initial uh assistant duties i love that you were not a great assistant and get yourself a gig and have a five-year run at mccann that was an awesome run mccann in seattle was a really good agency the clients were fantastic i worked on brands like domino's pizza and i mentioned washington mutual um i worked on some great pro bono stuff there it was really, I would say those were my most formative years in the industry. I spent, I think it was almost five years there. Those friends, you know, when you're in that work hard, play hard stage of life and you just days blur into evenings, blur into pitches, blur into weekends. It was that time in my life. And I'm still so close with all the people that I worked with there. That was a, a great agency and a great experience. Fantastic. So let's jump forward and then jump back at the same time. Back when you were at McCann starting, uh, give or take 1991, our industry was very different than it is today. Now, as uh, chief exec of a, of a really big, you know, high-powered, prominent shop, part of a big global network, you are immersed in the modern day issues and tools of the trade, most often driven by technology. That was not the case in 1991, 92, 93. There was very little, in relative terms, technology involved in our business. Talk about that collision or confluence, if you will, of creativity and commerce. Now, so much of that driven by technology, but that was not the case when you were working in the industry in those formative years at McCann. It's funny. Some of the issues and opportunities are the exact same 30 years ago. And yet the tools of the trade are so different. The technology of the trade, where our revenue comes from, it's very different. So I think about, let's talk about what's the same first. What's the same is we're dealing with human beings that are creative beings that have feelings and ambitions and hopes and dreams. And how do you motivate the best outcomes for those people. That hasn't changed in decades. And it's even more complicated now because of what COVID did to our hearts and brains and bodies. Um, it is still a human being business and human capital. It's our biggest expense and our biggest asset is our people. And so for me, what I've learned along the way in working with people and partnering and motivating with people and supporting people. Those that don't succeed in this business don't know how to do that. They end up making mistakes and alienating clients and colleagues, and you, and you don't make it here if you can't do it. So that's number one, that's the same. Number two, that's the same as creativity and ideas. The stories and channels are different, but I like the viva la difference. Like that is the creativity. It, is the aspect of this that is unchanging. Now, what is really different is the tools we use, how we get to it, uh, how AI has powered our, you know, that's a tool in my, I keep ChatGPT on my desktop at all times. I use it as a tool, just like I use Google. 
Um, I also think about our revenue sources. You know, clients used to pay more for creative and strategic services. And now they tend to pay more for platform, digital, CRM, analytics, some of the other important work that surrounds creativity. And so I've seen a shift in that too, and what agencies kind of bill for and, and get known for, um, you know, and then of course the channel so obvious it's social first, everything is social first. Everybody's got their thumb on their Instagram and their TikTok, and it's, the world revolves around social. And so you have to have more of a publishing mindset than an advertising mindset, if that makes sense. So you have to think like a content creator and a publisher, whatever channels those lives in versus we're going to make an ad plan. Yeah. I, I love that answer. And I, I agree with you completely that the most important currency in our industry remains people and the people that work in the business and the people that we're serving at our clients and ultimately consumers in the broader audience. It's still a business driven by and about people. And that has not changed. I've still seen, you know, people who are wonderful in a room together with clients that can co-create together, people that know how to bring introverts into a room and get their ideas on the table. That's where the magic happens. No question. So you had this five-year tenure at McCann, rising up the ladder, working on big clients. And then I think your passion for the mountains comes back into your day-to-day -day life and you move into sort of a, a marketing role uh, at one of the great resorts, Crystal Mountain. That was a very different part of your career path and journey. It was definitely a right turn. I moved from downtown Seattle, up 30 miles from the nearest grocery store, up in the mountains on Mount Rainier. I lived in an A-frame house that uh, didn't have internet or cell coverage at the time. I cut my own wood for my wood-burning fireplace. I had elk that lived in my front yard, a herd of elk. I had a company car that was a white trade show van with no windows as a 20 whatever year old, that wasn't my best look. And I went and worked on the mountain every day. I was the person that helped do the morning snow reports. I ran their marketing office up at Crystal Mountain. I think I ran the ticket office and the mountain ambassadors. Uh, I just love to ski. I grew up skiing, even in Minnesota where it's flat. I grew up on the same resort where Lindsey Vaughn did back in Minnesota, Buck Hill. And I just grew up skiing. So I always knew if a ski job ever came open, I would jump at it. And when I got the opportunity to go work at Crystal Mountain, I couldn't look back. And so in my late 20s, I lived that very mountain life. I had lots of Patagonia and Ugg boots and toques and jackets and hats and goggles. And I went up to the mountain every day and tried to convince people to come skiing. It was early on, you know, webcams were just starting back then. So one of my big initiatives was to get the first webcam on the top of Crystal Mountain Resort so that people could see what it was actually like above the clouds in Seattle. And so that was a just a fantastic experience. I did it for a couple of years and I wouldn't trade it. Fantastic stuff. What what And what a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. I was lucky enough, a lot of my early career was in sport. And I got to go to two winter games. I went to Lillehammer 
1994, and then I went to Vancouver, just north of where you were, uh, in 2010. And there's a certain, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm sort of used to breathing in subway and bus exhaust. Uh, but the air smells different in places like that. It smells different. And when it rains so much, you get such clear, fresh air. Vancouver is one of the neatest cities in North America, for sure. Um, it was a beautiful place to live. I loved it up there. And I definitely was remote, but I had friends that would come visit me. And I, you know, I made a good life of it. Chopped your own wood. That's so impressive. So <laughs> you go from there and sort of staying in that event marketing world, uh, begin what would become a very long run, I think pretty close to 25 years now, uh, as part of Team One and Publicis. That's unusual, which we'll come back to, to stay in one place for so long, different jobs, of course. Uh, but what brought you there? And I know you worked on the Lexus business. You know, what made you decide to go back? It's me, based on everything you're saying, if I had a gig like that, you know, in a place like Crystal uh, Mountain, I'm not so sure I would leave. <laughs> it was hard to leave. They couldn't believe I was leaving when I turned in my notice. So I met my now husband in Seattle. And he worked in film production. And he said, okay, Jewel, I need to move to LA. And I said, well, there's no flipping way I'm moving to LA. That's not in my card. So it's been nice knowing you. He convinced me that you can do anything for three to five years. You can live life in three to five year increments. Let's go to LA and let's give it a try. And I said, all right, I'm kind of an adventurer. I'll give it a go. I won't live there more than three to five years. And uh, he's still my husband today. We moved down here in a U-Haul and dragged our little Jetta behind and didn't know a soul here and found an, uh, you know, a termite-infested apartment on the beach in Marina del Rey, right by a lifeguard stand. I had got my rollerblades going. I was living the L.A. life. And he was doing his film production. He got on the movie Con Air. It was his first movie with Nicolas Cage. And so we were just giving it a go. And I found this job at Team One in our experiential marketing group. And it was all these sports deals, lifestyle deals, sponsorships. There was a skiing program. And I thought, oh, I found my job. I found my place. So I interviewed a bunch and ended up landing a job in our event marketing department here at Team One. And you're right, that was more than 25 years ago, which in this business is kind of unheard of. And have stayed in L.A. ever since. I love uh, L.A. and and uh, I lament the current state of L.A. W are you still in Marina del Rey or are you elsewhere? No, we moved to the South Bay to an area called Manhattan Beach. Okay. Uh, partly because we had we have three sons and really we wanted to embrace a public school system and they have good public schools. So yeah. and it's an awesome place to live. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really love it there. And I sure hope that, you know, and, and LA's challenges are not unique to LA. San Francisco is, I think, having an even harder time. Uh, I just read this morning that uh, the Target up in Harlem in New York is going to close, not because of poor sales, but because of theft. And I worry about LA. My son lived in Echo Park for a number of years and business takes me out there pretty frequently. And, uh, you know, 
I love the comedian Larry Charles. He was a producer on Seinfeld and has done a lot of really wonderful stuff. He did a great series on Netflix. It was Larry Charles in the world's most dangerous places. And he would go to places like Iraq and to countries that we don't even necessarily have relations with, Syria, and he would find the comedy. It was very interesting what he did. And he posted something about how is it that we have $5 billion for SoFi Stadium? And, you know, look what's going on in LA under every trestle, under every highway. Are the, you know, the homeless encampments and Skid Row in downtown LA, which is as bad as the Bronx, you know, in the 70s, going back to that, you know, Bronx's burning era. What's your take on the evolution of LA living there as a resident? Uh, are you worried? Are you hopeful? Um, I like Gavin Newsom. I, I, I just can't uh, fathom how we've gotten to the place that we have in our in our big cities. You will see up and down the co the West Coast between Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and LA, the homeless situation has been really intense and really sad. And great minds are trying to tackle it. LA is so big that if you choose to turn a blind eye and live in your bubble, you can. And your bubbles are very safe places and there are safe bubbles all over LA. The conflict here, though, is as human beings and compassionate individuals, you know, we can go about our day and sit in our car and be on our Bluetooth and do the magic driving into to and from work. And I always feel very safe. I've never felt threatened in, in where I work and where I live. It's very safe. However, I think we're called upon to be more compassionate and solve more problems. And, you know, part of it is a mental health crisis. Part of it is a drug crisis. Part of it is a policy crisis. And I think you were making the point earlier, which is this have and have nots have pulled apart even farther. And there's so much money to invest in stadiums and arenas and headquarters buildings and all the things. How do we all do better and do better together? It's it, People talk about it a lot here. Yeah, it's a... a, a you know, real topic. And, and one of the things I lament about the current political environment is we've gotten away from our leaders working on policy issues and things that are real problems. It's just all the noise. And, and for both the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, I agree. I thought about that last night in the debate. You know, it's some of these issues are really central and some of them are very tangential that people choose to sort of fight around the edges when there's some big central issues that I think both parties can really agree upon and work toward. You know, I think we do, we fight about the stuff that gets more media noise and the hard meaty subjects of politics are just, they're not as fun for the news media to cover, but that's where the hard work is done. Where are you spending the lion's share of the budget? How are you helping the big issues that help them, you know, the most people, clean, safe, well, all the things. And sort of tying back to our industry, you've also been a witness, if you will, to the rise of consciousness of uh, brands embracing their own responsibility and opportunity to connect with their audience around issues that transcend the business. I won't give you the example because it's a competitor, but I saw a great spot last night and it was about uh, pets and it was from a car company and it had very little to do with a particular model of a car or anything else, but it was just about humanity. And 
you know, my hero in this space is Paul Pullman at Unilever when he demonstrated that brands can wrap themselves around sustainability and purpose and profit were not at odds. What's your take against this backdrop of, you know, real problems that we have in America and worldwide on brands and, and Lexus and the Toyota family have been very proactive. I loved what they did at the Tokyo Olympics, supporting the Paralympics uh, mm-hmm. and really helped, el- yep. help, helped elevate that entire experience. The Paralympics for many, many years existed, you know, in a much quieter environment. And I think the financial support that Toyota and Lexus being part of that family uh, did really elevated that for everyone globally. Do you see that in your family of companies and clients, an increase in embrace of issues that transcend the simple sale of a product or service? 100%. I have two thoughts for you. The first is every client we have does it differently. So for example, one of our clients is Marriott International and a lot of their luxury brands and premium brands like the Ritz-Carlton and others. And they think a lot about volunteerism getting people to have more transcendent experiences that help the world and still enjoying a wonderful vacation. They think about the footprint of their hotels and their how many towels they wash and how many plastic bottles they have, you know, as a result of shampoos and conditioners. We have automotive clients that think a lot about emissions and they think about a lot about the impact of batteries versus gas and the impact of factory building and local jobs versus overseas jobs. Um, we have an airline client, Cathay Pacific, who thinks a lot about what's the best way to get people around the world without, you know, poisoning our world with, with carbon and things like that. So my first comment would be every client does it differently and thinks about it differently. And then my second comment would be those that are the most successful put the customer at the middle. And we do all this work at Team One around the Global Affluent Tribe, which is a study around affluent consumers. We tend to specialize in premium brands and affluent consumers. So we know a lot about these folks. And we're finding affluents really vote with their wallets for companies that believe in the right things and believe in the better things for the world. And it's not sort of veiled ads that show, you know, shiny, happy people. This is companies that are trying hard to do the right thing in the world. Um, And so, you know, one of the things we find in our global affluent tribe study is that relationships are now more important than anything else. COVID did a number on our ability to be social. They did an ability, a number on our ability to interact with the world. You know, we kind of had to retrench. And so personal connections, taking care of, of the planet status is not what it used to be and consumption is not what it used to be and so affluent consumers are leading the way in helping companies be better companies because how they vote with their wallets yeah i think that's very very well said and it's a trend that that we see in uh in my mind the best part of what we do at advertising week is when we're able to talk about issues that transcend the business you know, we're coming up in a few weeks and we'll have, you know, a deep roster of content around all the issues of the day, you know, AI and retail media and data and analytics and some of the areas that we've touched on that are tech driven. 
but we're also doing, you know, quite a bit around issues. We just helped launch a campaign with our friend Richard Curtis and Project uh, Project Everyone that is an incredible spot, a campaign called Halftime about the climate crisis. And we got permission to use a great clip. You may remember uh, the movie Any Given Sunday with Al Pacino. And he does a very famous speech in the locker room and we got the rights to use that speech and he did a new voiceover for us. And the basic gist of the spot is, it's really more of a short film, is it's halftime, we're losing, but it's not over. And uh, it was really, really well done. Uh, I hope that we continue that trend because those we've elected to lead us on a lot of these issues are not really getting the job done. So that leadership has to come from somewhere else. And often today it's coming from brands. And we have to prove that brands doing the right thing helps their bottom line also. It helps the world and it helps their bottom line. And we're finding that affluent consumers are the ones that will reward brands for making those right decisions. You also think about new businesses that are popping up as a result. So think about the whole online consignment world. Are you familiar with the real real? It's yeah, a luxury. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, they're doing so well and they've found a way to say this is about sharing luxury goods and helping the world while we're at it. And you can still get your Burke bag or your, you know, your Louboutins or whatever you want. And you just can sell them when you're finished and someone else can enjoy them for a while. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I also like how a lot of these online brands morph into some bricks and mortar presents. I'm 99, 99% sure my wife took me to a real, real store. Mm -hmm. They do. They have stores now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. You took the helm in 2019 and give or take six, seven, eight months after you take the, the helm as chief executive officer, uh, the world changes. You've got somewhere around 500 employees, part of your remit and part of your team at Team One. Talk about that evolution very early on. You know, no one really knew how long it was going to last at the beginning. We all thought, as I'm sure you did, it would be, you know, a couple weeks, maybe a month. No one imagined then the length that this thing would knock us all out of the box managing as chief exec, that's an awfully big responsibility. Talk about that evolution for you and how you navigated that and how you kept yourself upbeat because as chief exec, you're also the coach of the football team and you've got to keep everybody else up when they're down. It was by far the biggest leadership challenge of my career so far. If I'm looking at a silver lining, I'm also thinking it was maybe the opportunity I had to define my, my version of leadership. I could talk about that. Uh, you know, at first it's scary. You're thinking about the well-being of your people and their families, and you're hearing about your employees who are losing a parent or worried about their compromised health conditions. You know, at first it was all about health and well-being and you know, we kind of forget about that piece because now it's about return to office and all those kind of conversations. Uh, but at the time, it was very much about well-being. And then it became about how are we going to figure out this work from home situation? We used it to our advantage. We talked a lot on video. We had a funny thing. I mean, we would start to do fun things because we were just all going nuts. 
we would had somebody start the song uh, Country Roads Take Me Home and he would play it in his guitar and then he'd lob it to somebody else and I would sing it, you know, in the shower with, you know, like the second verse and then I'd lob it to someone else and we'd make a music video out of it because we're all just trying to keep our creativity alive and do some fun things. On You just learned the power of video. Everybody also became a better creator during COVID. The creative department got a lot bigger because everybody got creative. You made your own movies, you made your own videos, you ran your own meetings in different ways, you thought about creativity differently. So guiding the agency through it was really hard. There was the health aspect, there was the technology aspect, then there was the keeping people connected because at some point they got really used to just doing laundry in the morning and sitting doing Zooms and emails and you know, you start to get almost that gig worker mentality, right? Where people maybe don't feel as connected to the whole because they haven't seen their colleagues in two years in person. Or we hired a bunch of people during COVID who never got to understand our mission and our values and our people and all of that. So, I mean, it, it was, I'd love to write a book about it someday because I think you could go through the chapters of learning. And, and it's frankly still hard. You know, we're in this conversation about return to office versus not, and we're in three days a week and I love it. I think it's great. I've missed people. Um, but I've also got people who just don't see any value in it. They say they're more productive working from home. And in some cases they are. Although I did see an article and I'll give, I'll breathe here after a second, but I saw an article about Harvard Business Review just did something about how employees can be not invisible because employees are starting to be invisible to their colleagues and their coworkers and their bosses. And the whole article was on ways to not be invisible at work, to add meaningful value at work. So there's another chapter of the book we need to write. Uh, I'd like to read that book. So you talk about leadership and leadership styles and, and, uh, I'm of the mind that you should come to work and I have to be very cognizant not to sound old. I, I am old. I'm 59. So that's where my experience comes from. And by the way, opinion, I call that young to middle age. I listen, I, I, I feel better at 59 than I did at 29 or 39. So, uh, <laughs> no, not complaining at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, the answer that you have and you gave some of it is, but I'm more productive at home or I'm on zoom calls and I'm busy. My view is you work in a creative industry and a lot of the best stuff is the stuff that's not on your calendar and not scheduled you know i have a big window outside of my office and people will walk by all day and you know i'll say hey dane i just thought of something well okay here's I, let's talk about this maybe we can think of something and that stuff doesn't appear in your calendar give us your take as a leader on the sweet stuff in between that's not scheduled. And do you buy into this notion that I can be just as productive working, you know, in a bathrobe in my kitchen? I have some thoughts on this. The first is I think you can be efficient at home. I think people are very efficient at home. I don't know that if efficiency is a hundred percent of a job. I also think we're in a business that's, a, you know, our average age is probably 27 to 28 years old in our company. We have a lot of young and entry-level people entering our workforce. We are 
coaches and mentors and bosses. And it's on us to help people be connected to the purpose and to the creativity. And introverts get lost in this world and it's our our job to bring them forward. I also think there's a a misunderstanding out there. A lot of people blame Gen Z as the generation that doesn't, you know, doesn't want to come in, just wants to be on their phone. We have found that Gen Z wants to be here. They want to learn. They want to have a job where they're exposed to a lot of things. It's sometimes the Gen Y and early Gen X that are kind of living busy lives. They've had their job for five to 10 years. They have kids maybe or other hobbies. And they're like, look, I can do this with my hand, you know, like the back of my hand. I don't need to come in. I like the flexibility of being with my family, which I love and appreciate. And so it's that generation that's pushing back on being in the office. It's like Gen Z is actually embracing it and loving it. I want to be here because they want to learn and grow and get promoted and all the stuff. Well, I, I side with Gen Z on this conversation. And uh, uh, also another great answer. This is so much fun, Julie. So as we start to wrap, you know, you've been in sort of one place for about 25 years. You've now risen to the top. What's on your bucket list? If I said, okay, Julie, here's a clean piece of paper and a plane ticket to anywhere in the world, and you can have any job you want in any city you want. What's on your list? What would be your dream beyond the dreams that you've already accomplished, which are you know, pretty substantial? Thank you for asking that. That's always a hard question for anyone to answer because I, I actually quite love my job. And if you think about what else you would do, it might be personal pursuits, you know, it might be a kind of travel, it might be experiencing something very different. I still would love to launch something big. You know, when you're in the agency world, you're in the business of making recommendations. When you're on the brand side, you're in the business of making decisions. And so you know, we make a lot of recommendations during our day. I sometimes think about what it would be like to either start my own company or um, be with a big brand in a very senior capacity where you actually get to make the decisions. I like that. About brand trajectory. I think that would be fun. I mean, we make a lot of decisions about our our own future too, but the product we make is always dependent on a client's appetite to buy it. Right. Right. So well said. Well, Julie, thanks so much for doing this. This was so much fun. And I will I absolutely, I will absolutely look you up when I come out to LA. I'm a huge fan of your city. And uh, if you come to New York, let me know. If we go to LA, I'll let you buy. You come to New York, I'll buy. That's a deal. All right, Julie. Thanks so much. Take care.